Among the many reasons for hope brought to you by this podcast, today we'd like to open with something a bit more out of the ordinary, but something we're really excited about. Email made by and for Catholics. It's called Fide Email. That's F-I-D-E-I, the Latin word meaning of faith. Fide has unique plans for Catholic individuals, families, organizations, and groups. They offer email, calendars, cloud storage, and collaborative documents, and something tells us that they're just getting started. Private, secure, and of course, Catholic. Fide Email, www.fide.com. Hello and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm your host, Mario Costabile, and I am so glad you're here with us today. A Ray of Hope is involved in so many forms of media, such as films, music, and events, but this A Reason for Hope podcast is a little different for us. It's a deeper dive into our faith and the teachings of the Catholic Church. So what is the role of a bishop in our church? Do we understand what they do or what they should be doing? There is a lot of confusion today about the teachings of the church. In part, I believe it has come from some of our leaders or our bishops not speaking clearly and boldly when it is needed. There needs to be clarity amongst growing ideologies spreading across our country. After all, isn't that what the apostles did? I mean, they spoke with clarity. They were the first teachers of our faith, the first teachers of the truths of the Catholic Church. Essentially, the bishops are our modern-day apostles, teaching and administering the sacraments, leading us toward Christ as our shepherds. Our guest today is Bishop Joseph Strickland, and we're going to talk to him about the role of a bishop in the church. He is a true warrior in these troubling times. He's unapologetic and bold in speaking the truth and orthodoxy of our Catholic faith. This episode will be very enlightening. So welcome to A Reason for Hope, and here we go. So Dave, here we are. Uh, how was your summer? It was pretty good. I, I really love summer for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them is that I'm a teacher, so I get mm. a lot more free time in the summer. Of course, I pick things up at a ray of hope here a little bit in the summertime because mm-hmm. I have the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you know when it's the school year and I'm doing the school stuff, and then I'm doing the array of hope stuff. When I get home, I'm kind of you're fried. I'm fried. Yeah. And and what can happen is you can get into manager mode, which mm. is never a good way to relate to your children. So like in a, yeah. In in a way, the summer allows me that time to have more conversations, to to spend more time, to to really get to know them. Yeah. And it's awesome. uh, and to play a bit. So yeah. that's been great. So you've been, been playing all summer. Thing. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been hot, huh? It's been <laughs> a hot one. Ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, well, that's a bummer actually in a way because you can't go outside as much as you'd like to mm, because it's just, you know, too hot. I mean, a lot of people have been complaining, but I just, I love the summer. I, I hate the winter. I love the heat. doesn't bother me. Uh, just love it. It's that Mediterranean blood, yeah, my brother. It's that <laughs> European sort of vibe. Um, so uh, our topic today is actually the role of a bishop uh, in our church. And our guest is uh, Bishop uh, Joseph Strickland, whom is a hero of mine. I think he's a true champion in the church, and we're super excited that we had the opportunity uh, to interview him and have him on the show. And really, what is the role of a bishop in our church uh, to teach, to govern, and to sanctify? Uh, and, and it's really not that much different than what our role is as a father, right? There are a lot of similarities. And mm-hmm. and I think that the language of family is 
uh, language that permeates the church. I mean, if we even think of the Pope comes from Papa, right? Mm, and yeah. uh, and bishops are like fathers of of the church, but also of a particular geographical area, a diocese. Yeah. And the family of God in that area, they're supposed to lead as a father. And if you think about the role of fathers, what are fathers supposed to do? Well, teaching is a big thing fathers are supposed to do. Right. So to teach our children, to help guide them in how to be a, a full human being, how to be a good person, uh, how to be a faithful Catholic, to teach them the faith especially. Right. Um, and then to just give them skills for life. This is a, an important part of being a, a dad. Sure. And then to govern, we, we say that, you know, the father is the head of the home. And so in a sense, the, the father has a role as a leader in the home. And that leadership or that authority that a father has is supposed to be for service. And this is an important aspect of authority understood from a Christian perspective. I mean, Jesus makes it clear that that authority is not to lord over others, right. but it's in order to serve sure. others. Mm -hmm. So a father is supposed to govern and have authority, but as a servant of his wife and of his children. And then to sanctify, to, to help become holy. Well, that's what fathers do too. They're supposed to be zealous for the holiness of their families, to raise a, a holy family, to help their kids uh, seek holiness, to, to learn about uh, how it is that they're supposed to serve God and what they need to do in order to become more and more like Jesus and to, to grow in Christian perfection. This is an important part. And so there's a spiritual leadership in the home that the father hmm. is supposed to um, exercise and to, in order to lead the, the flock of his family, so to speak, to eternal life and to heaven. So there are similarities um, between what a, a father does in the home and what a bishop does for a diocese and for mm -hmm. the people of God, the family of God. So that's a that's a great analogy, Dave, that you made you know, between fatherhood and and being a bishop. So how does a bishop do those things that you just mentioned that a father should be doing? Yeah. Okay. So, well, the first thing is that the if we talk about like even governing with authority, mm -hmm. the word bishop comes from the Greek episkopos, which means overseer, and it was actually a term used in Roman government to refer to somebody who had authority over a certain area or group, uh, a governmental leader. Mm -hmm. So um, right there, it kind of tells you that the bishop is supposed to govern. Right. Right. Um, the very name bishop indicates that. Well, holy orders, the sacrament of holy orders is really about church governance. It's the sacrament of holy orders uh, allows the men who partake of that sacrament to share in the very authority of Jesus Christ in governing the church. And in fact, the, the term orders in that actually is sort of like a military term. Um, it can refer to ranks. Mm. And so you have three ranks of holy orders. You've got the deacon, you've got the priest, you've got the bishop. Sure. And it can also refer to like being under orders. So like, uh, when somebody in the military receives their orders, it's like, you have to go, right? Yeah. So um, so that's very much what holy orders is about. And the a special grace is given through that sacrament. A special character is given in that sacrament wow. to, to share in the authority of Jesus and to govern um, in his name. And uh, 
it's important to remember that like the fullness of the priesthood, the fullness of holy orders actually is subsists in the bishop. So the the fullness of the priesthoods in the bishop, priests, you might want to say share in the fullness of the priesthood that's in the bishop. Hmm. And that's why priests are under the authority of the bishops. Right. Because they help the bishop in the bishop's ministry. Right. Being father or overseer of a particular it makes sense. portion of the family yeah, yeah. of God. Mm -hmm. And deacons, of course, even in a, a lesser way, share in that authority to serve their own role as deacons, as ministers of the word and to mm -hmm. help with the, the service of the people of God. Mm -hmm. um, but the bishops are also the successors of the apostles. And so when you see a bishop, it's as if you're seeing Matthew or John or James. Right. And and the who were the apostles? They were the ones who were the authority in the church. They were the ones who governed the people of God. And they were the ones who were the leaders of, of communities of Christians. And so you would have like the Matthean community that, you know, was sort of founded by Matthew and was governed by Matthew as an example. And so the, the bishops today continue that throughout the world. Of course, now that there's many more bishops than the initial 12 apostles mm -hmm. because the, the church has grown and spread throughout the whole world. But effectively, a bishop is an apostle. Yeah. And, uh, and the pope is the leader of the apostles the bishops, sure. who is the successor of Peter, who was the leader of the apostles. Yeah. So the the Pope and the bishops are for the church today what Peter and the apostles, in fact, were. And I, and I just I, and just want to interject so our listeners and viewers completely understand is that we're really the only religion that have that apostolic succession. So our bishops, our priests, our popes have a direct lineage right back to Christ. Hence, what you explained about an apostle the bishops are literally apostles in modern day And that's church. what we mean, by the way, when we say that the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. apostolic right. You know, I mean, that's that's a key phrase, a sure. mark of the church right. that indicates Which what the beautiful. true church is. It's yes. really, it's the only religion that can claim that. But this is also part of the reason why when bishops fail in their role of serving the people of God, because again, even for bishops, the governing of the bishop and specifically, Jesus was instructing his apostles about this, that the governing is for service. And what is the service? For the service of the salvation of the souls of the people, right? So this is the main issue, right? Yeah, and so, I'm, I'm and so, so like when, <laughs> when bishops fail in this role, either yeah. because, you know, maybe they, they focus on power or whatever with regards to their authority, um, or if they're not really seeming to be acting on behalf of the salvation of souls— um, maybe this this can become like a, a great scandal. Hmm. And, and now the, the word scandal is an interesting word in the Greek. It's scandalon means like it's, it refers to a rock that would like be in a path that somebody who's walking could trip over and fall. Mm -hmm. So it's that which causes us to fall, you know? And and I think that that's, that's a terrible thing when that happens. Um, and so it's very important that the bishop is always mindful of like, you know, that role. In addition to the role of governing, a bishop is supposed to teach, right? Now, I guess my question is, what is it the bishop is supposed to teach? Notice the apostles, when they were given the charge by Jesus to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So what were the apostles supposed to teach? They're supposed to teach what Jesus taught. Right. And in fact, Jesus promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to them who would guide them to all truth, that would remind them of all that Jesus had said to them. Right. So that's really key. 
So the role of the bishop is to teach, but it's to teach what Jesus taught and the truth that he passed on to the apostles and they passed on to the church, the deposit of faith. Mm. And as successors of the apostles, they're supposed to carry on that apostolic teaching. Okay. And so, um, again, this is a this is an area that I think bishops really need to take seriously as successors of the apostles. When when a bishop doesn't teach what Jesus taught, what, what is found in scripture or sacred tradition, or doesn't teach or departs from what the church has consistently taught throughout the 2,000 years of sure. the Catholic church, that's a great scandal to people. That's confusing. It sows confusion. It doesn't give people clarity. It doesn't teach them, really. It 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 really does the opposite, you know. Sure. Again, it's a scandal. I mm. think it's an obstacle. It causes people to fall. So, um, and in this sense, I think there's a there's an aspect of the of the bishop's role that needs to be willing to keep the salvation of souls, which is the fundamental law, right? right at the forefront. It's the primary. It's the primary thing. Yeah. And so if that means sometimes that teaching is gonna rub somebody the wrong way, sure, I wanna find maybe the best, most effective way of of explaining, of sharing this teaching, but to water down the teaching or to in some way confuse the faithful, thinking that something's okay that's not, or that we believe something that we don't, or that, that we don't believe something that we do, you know, this only gets in the way of the salvation of the yeah. souls of the faithful. Um, because Jesus says, it's the truth that will set you free, mm -hmm. right? It's the truth yeah. that will set you free. And in fact, uh, it says in the Acts of the Apostles that, that is, it is God's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so if the truth is withheld or watered down or obfuscated or whatever, it's just not, it's not good for the salvation of souls. And that's, again, the primary goal. I think sometimes what can happen is, um, and this goes for all of us, eh? So like, I'm not just pointing fingers at, at the leaders in the church, but like for all of us, we can be concerned about what people think of us. We can, we can want people to really like Christianity or to like the Catholic church or we don't want to impose burdens on people so we feel bad about telling them something that's going to maybe upset them or they're going to have to change their life about so we we try to do the soft shoe you know but really the fact of the matter is that doesn't help people's salvation yeah right so so that's like the teaching and then i think lastly um, a bishop is supposed to sanctify the people of God. So this is primarily done through the sacraments, you know, and I think that, you know, you hear Jesus at that, at that um, commission in the, in the gospels to, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then at the Last Supper, you know, the Eucharist to do this in remembrance of me. And, and so the, the sacraments are the prime way in which the bishop is to sanctify the people of God. Um, and, and he obviously exercises that through his priests as well. Um, and although there are ones that will involve him most directly, like obviously ordaining priests in his diocese or mm -hmm. the confirmation, you know, sacrament of confirmation yeah. for, because he's the ordinary minister of confirmation. But this is even interesting. He's the ordinary minister of confirmation because confirmation in a way is the sacrament of Christian witness. What is the color of confirmation? It's red. That's because it's the Holy Spirit, but also because if 
if it's the sacrament of Christian witness, what's the word for witness in Greek? It's martyros, which is where we get the word martyr. Interesting. And why is it that bishops wear red? Because in the early church, it meant they were marked men. They were probably going to be killed. They were going to have to witness, give testimony to mm -hmm. Christ. And confirmation is, you know, a sacrament in which people become, you know, it's a, a sacrament of Christian maturity, but it's a sacrament of Christian witness. And so you need to be ready to, to shed your blood for Christ. In the old rite of confirmation, the bishop gave you a little slap to kind of said, you have to be willing to suffer blows mm -hmm. for Christ, right? I mean, don't do that anymore, yeah. you know, like, but, um, but that was the point of it, right? And- and I think this is important because what it means for the bishop is that he needs to be willing to lay down his life, to sacrifice himself for his flock. He can't be um, the one who runs away like Jesus talks about because he's a hired hand. He needs to be the shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Mm -hmm. and, and that's key because what this means is he personally in his prayer life, in his own spiritual life, the, his own acts of mortification, of penance, etc., should be offering himself as Christ for the salvation of the souls of the people under his care. So the prayer life of the bishop, the life of uh, the ascetical life of the bishop, you know, the the amount in which the bishop himself makes reparation and and does penance and 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 offers up his that those sacrifices for his flock. That's an important part of what the sanctifying of the people of God means for him. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. Um, in the great scheme of things, this is what it means for them to to govern, to teach, and to sanctify specifically, yeah. um, and how that's played out in their in their ministry, um, but it's uh, we need to pray for our bishops because that's a that's a mighty task, eh? One hundred percent. And 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 you had said, I mean, they are men, right? And, and Jesus has given them a huge responsibility. And sometimes, uh, uh, to your point, that uh, the the message, uh, the teachings of Christ, get watered down because they are men, and they maybe lack the trust needed to have the courage to really proclaim the truth because the first and foremost task is the salvation of souls. Yes. So it's a matter of like really recognizing that we really do as a body of Christ need to pray for our bishops because they need it, you know? Yeah, they're our fathers. They're our fathers, just as we would pay, pray for our own fathers. And Yeah, yeah. and hopefully our children pray for us. That's right. I need Amen. prayer. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right, Dave, great discussion, really great. And I'm hoping uh, that uh, gave some clarity, you know, and I, it certainly did for me. And it'll be great to hear from Bishop Strickland. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Peace. Peace. Among the many reasons for hope brought to you by this podcast, today we'd like to talk about Catholics supporting Catholics, specifically a Catholic-run technology company that is providing sane alternatives to big tech. It's called Fide Email. That's F-I-D-E-I, -E the Latin word meaning of faith. They have unique plans for Catholic individuals, families, organizations, and groups. They offer email, calendars, cloud storage, and collaborative documents, and something tells us they're just getting started. If you're a business and need to keep your domain, they'll help with that. 
And if you always thought it would be great to have an email that reflects your business, Fide can help you acquire a domain and they'll set up everything for you. Migration to Fide is easy and all your email IDs stay the same. Or if you're just interested in a personal email, imagine getting one without having to add a bunch of random numbers to it just to find something unique. Imagine not having to use a service run by a company who actively works to undermine Catholic culture. Feeling hopeful yet? Why don't you head on over to Fide.email and learn more about this wonderfully hopeful service. They're private, secure, and of course, Catholic. Fide email, www.fide.email. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Alanis here with Who's That Saint, where I give you guys three clues on one saint for you to guess before the big reveal. Who's that saint? Clue number one. This saint had a strong will to serve God from as early as the age of five, so he began serving at his local parish as an altar server, and from that young age was able to see his guardian angel and had visions of the Blessed Virgin Mary and of Jesus, so slight flex there. But who is that saint? Clue number two. Considering that he was already serving the church at the ripe age of five, it's probably not too shocking to find out that just 10 years later, this saint became a Franciscan friar. So just at the age of 15, he joined the order and was ordained a priest in 1910. So who is that saint? Clue number three, this saint actually heard the confession of a once young priest and prophesied that he would rise to the highest post in the church. That young priest later became Pope John Paul II, who went on to canonize this very saint. Talk about a full circle moment. So guys, who is that saint? If you guys guessed St. Padre Pio, then you guessed correctly. St. Padre Pio was born Francesco Forgioni in Pietrelcena, Italy. As I mentioned, he went on to become a Capuchin friar and was ordained a priest in 1910. So Padre Pio is famously known for having been given the gift of the stigmata, which means he had bodily wounds that corresponded to the same crucifixion wounds of Jesus. Okay, so you know the holes in the hands. Yeah, he had that. But according to accounts, blood from his stigmata actually had a fragrant smell of perfume or of roses, which the church recognizes as the odor of sanctity. I don't know about y'all, but whenever I think about Padre Pio, I've always classified him with all of the other like ancient saints that have lived before us. But y'all, this man died 54 years ago, back in 1968. So I would definitely consider him a more modern day saint, which is so inspiring. St. Padre Pio, pray for us. Hello everyone, this is Jack Arno, a Ray of Hope's director of audio and music production, and welcome back to The Music Corner. We're so very excited to have you listening in on season three of our A Reason for Hope podcast. Among the many things being produced here, our music team has been very hard at work this summer writing new songs. And if you want to be in the loop for new upcoming releases, follow us on your music streaming platform of choice by searching A Ray of Hope at A Ray of Hope. We're very passionate about spreading the gospel in the way we live our lives. And we're dedicated to constantly innovating the way Catholic media is produced and distributed. This past June, the U.S. bishops called on the church to engage in a national Eucharistic revival. Their goal is to, quote, renew the church by enkindling a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist. A Ray of Hope has been inspired by this call and our band has been producing a song called In Your Presence. 
a song we envision being sung to the Lord Jesus during adoration. It's a song of gratitude for the opportunity to be in his holy presence and the joy that then flows from an internal disposition of being grateful. As we often hear, joy is the fruit of gratitude. So enjoy this preview of the chorus of In Your Presence, written by our lead singer, Brianne Nealon. I feel so blessed to be Bishop Joseph Strickland entered Holy Trinity Seminary and the University of Dallas, studying for the Diocese of Dallas in August of 1977, and earned a Bachelor of Philosophy in May of 1981. He continued his education at Holy Trinity and the University of Dallas, and was ordained to the diaconate by then Bishop Michael Sheehan at Holy Trinity Seminary on December 8th. 1984. He earned a Master's of Divinity degree in May of 1985 and was ordained to the priesthood for the Diocese of Dallas on June 1, 1985. In May of 1994, he completed his canonical studies in canon law. And on September 29, 2012, it was announced that His Holiness, Pope Benedict XVI, had chosen Strickland for the fourth bishop of the Diocese of Tyler. Let's welcome Bishop Joseph Strickland. So, uh, Bishop, so nice to have you here on our podcast and our Rise Up Live show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I've been a huge fan. I am uh, marveled by your your boldness and your excitement about the faith and our teachings of the church, and I thank you for that. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, Mario. Um, I, I'm a fan of Jesus Christ, and <laughs> I, I work for him, so that's Amen. what it's all about. That's yeah. who it's all about. Amen. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about yourself and the humble beginnings of Bishop Joseph Strickland. Yeah, I grew up here in the diocese at Northeast Texas. Uh, the family moved here when I was about four years old. I'm number six of seven kids. We grew up, one infant died. So we there were six of us that grew up together. Um, so I'm number five of the six surviving Strickland kids. Grew up in a very uh, devoted Catholic family. Um, going to Mass was, there wasn't any question. We went to Mass. There was only one. <laughs> we went to a small mission church in Atlanta, Texas, and uh, it's still there. It's in the diocese where I am now. So I'm the bishop of the little church where I grew up. Um, wow. And so being Catholic, as I've told people many times, and I think that's been the real blessing for me, especially in these stormy years, uh, because we were raised to know that being Catholic, we didn't have money. We didn't have much of anything. We did grow up on 100 acres, so we had that great opportunity um, and took care of cows and horses and 
just lived a, a pretty much country life, five miles out of the big town of Atlanta, Texas, which is only 5,000 people. So grew up there and being Catholic was, we were rock stars because we were Catholic. I mean, that's how the Catholic faith was presented to us. Mm. My mother, uh, a Catholic, Irish Catholic by way of Sydney, Australia. My father converted to the Catholic faith, but wow. was a Southern Baptist here in East Texas, just a couple of hours from where the family grew up or I grew up. Um, so our family was committed to the Catholic faith. Uh, I can remember many times because I grew up in controversial years, uh, the mid to late sixties. I went in the seminary in 1977 at 18 years old. Wow. So sixties, my life was very much woven into the controversy of the sixties. Of course I was a kid. So a lot of it sort of went over my, went past me, went over my head. I wasn't concerned about Humanae Vitae. And the, I mean, we did hear a lot about the Vietnam War, but, mm -hmm. you know, it was just part of growing up. Um, so there was a lot of turmoil in that time. And I can remember my mother saying very often, and my father always there to support it, but she was sort of the, the family catechist. And she would say, she would quote St. Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? if we leave the Catholic church and we'd hear about friends or even family members that maybe weren't as strong in the faith as they should have been. So uh, we were taught that Jesus Christ is Lord and savior and he established the Catholic church. So that has been woven into my DNA from, you know, my earliest memories. Wow. So you are truly a cradle Catholic right from the beginning, huh? Oh, absolutely. Was there a moment um, that you can recall where um, uh, where essentially you had ownership, of, like the Lord touched you in a very, very unique, special way where you really felt the presence and the beauty of his love it, it, growing up, maybe where it said, oh, this is what my parents are talking about. This is why I'm going to church. Now I feel it. Was there a moment in your life where that happened? Um, I'd have to say several moments, just sort of a deepening. Um, I like to... Uh, you know, we've heard of converts, of course, and reverts. I, I call myself a deep vert. <laughs> I just keep going deeper. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, awesome. the faith was always there, always believed in the real presence. And I'd say in high school, before going off to the seminary, just, just because of how I'd been raised, I had a little high job during high school. I played football and had other activities in high school. And we lived out in the country. So a lot of times I was waiting for a ride and I would go to the church and pray. Hmm. Nobody told me, oh, that's a good thing to do. Um, I don't know that anybody knew I was doing it. Uh, and honestly, I mean, the human side, it was air conditioned. You know, <laughs> it was a place. To go. But I would walk over the church. It wasn't a, a long walk, but I would go and pray. Uh, the church was open, thankfully. And of course, there was. It's a small little mission church, but the tabernacle, the Lord was present. And I, I look back at that as with me knowing really very little of the deep theology of the church, but those basic truths and the basic presence of the Lord mm -hmm. was already calling me then. And then as a priest, um, I grew up in the seminary, was formed in the years where things like adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, benediction were sort of passe for a lot of people in the church. 
And I went to a seminary, went to Holy Trinity Seminary and associated with the University of Dallas. It's in Irving, Texas. And uh, it was considered a pretty conservative seminary in those days. I really um, am sort of worn out with the terms of liberal and conservative. I just want the truth. It's not, there's no extra label. It's the truth of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, yeah. a lot of that was shared in my time in the seminary. We had uh, benediction every Sunday night. We called it Benny Cop, benediction <laughs> and cop every Sunday night. They still do That's at awesome. that seminary. And so that was a signal to me that this wasn't some antiquated thing that needed to be gotten rid of, but it was part of the life of the church. And so as a young priest, my first place as a pastor, I said, I'm going to start having Eucharistic, having benediction and adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And that kind of planted the seeds for me. Then I was rector of the cathedral for 16 years here in Tyler. And we had at that time, it was sort of, you know, cutting edge, you know, and really going back to the roots of the church to have, we had four of uh, first Fridays, we would have adoration all day and benediction, hmm. which is pretty normal, but it was at least, it was a pretty big deal for most of the parishes weren't doing that. And again, no, the bishop didn't tell me you have to do this. I just, it just came out of my own Eucharistic piety. And then as I became a bishop, that just sort of got supercharged, I'd have mm. to say. I needed yeah. that strength. Sure. I think the Lord knew that. Um, I'm a sinner. I'm nothing special. I'm weak and easily intimidated. So I needed his strength from Eucharistic adoration, mm. which I tell people, that's the power source. Yeah. Anything good that Bishop Strickland's doing, the power source is Eucharistic adoration and of course, always hand in hand, the Immaculate Virgin Mary. And as Amen. I look back in my experience, especially as a bishop, as a priest as well, but I wasn't, you know, this super pious priest that prayed the rosary all the time. I prayed the rosary, um, but more and more, it's just deepened, as I said. And as a bishop, it's like, uh, it, it, I feel like the Holy Spirit said, okay, we're going to use this one. We're going <laughs> to use and and that's really what's happened. And even I've been a bishop, it'll be 10 years in November. Wow. And it took, you know, it took me a while to get the feel of it. But you talk about those moments. I do remember a moment when I felt I had to make a decision. Was I just going to kind of continue on the path that I was seeing sort of a bishop manager that as I see it, um, you know, managing a lot, which a bishop has to. But is was that sort of the, the main thrust of what I was going to do? And, and I said, no, I'm going to be about teaching the truth. And so that was a very conscious, I don't remember date and time, but I remember very specifically, that was a turning point. I said, okay, Joe, you're going to either do this or you're just going to sort of coast with what you've already seen most mm -hmm. bishops. And I, I don't judge anyone else, but I knew for myself, I had to do something more than what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And so I said, we're going to be a teaching diocese. I wrote a constitution on teaching with a lot of help um, and established an institute of catechesis and evangelization to teach the fullness and the glorious message of Jesus Christ, the whole challenging and consoling and life-giving and joyful, all the aspects of his truth 
that too much of it has been sort of, well, we'll take this part, but we won't take that. And you got to take the tough and the, the joyful and the glorious, all of it together. The church is divided. And I don't hear enough personally. The Jesus Christ is the principle of that unity. And I don't hear that emphasized enough really by anyone. I think we've got to be unified in Christ. He's our only hope of bringing the diversity and the, the, the real deep divisions between mm. bishops. There are many of the bishops that are far from me as far mm. as what they believe yeah. is the, the, the mission of the church. And uh, we've, you know, we've got to respect yeah. each other, but ultimately look to Christ. And, you know, the, the, the tendency, um, I read a book by uh, Ralph Martin. Oh, sure. That the bracketing of scripture. And I've really mm. latched on to that because I think it's not just scripture. Absolutely. We've bracketed scripture, but we bracketed the truth. And it's, if it's like, well, that's a little too challenging. So we won't talk about that part. That's the world I grew up in, in many ways. And I think it's been a disservice to every person, to every priest, every bishop to have that kind of, oh, well, we aren't going to really look at the hard stuff that it, it diminishes the power of the gospel. You got to look, I mean, as Fulton Sheen says, I quote him all the time, but he was very wise and very prophetic. And he says the famous quote, there is no resurrection. There is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. And I think there's been a cultural attempt to try to eliminate the Good Friday and just hang on to the Easter Sunday. It doesn't work. Um, that's not how we live. That's not how the universe is put together. That's not what Jesus Christ experienced. So, Hey, if you're enjoying this interview, be sure to check out the full video version on the Array of Hope channel. Subscribe for free at watch.arrayofhope.net. Then download the app by searching Array of Hope on your mobile device, Apple TV, or Roku. That's beautiful. I'm so glad to hear you uh, express the importance of the bishops and really their role is to, to teach, to govern, to sanctify. And, and it's, uh, um, as, as you shared, unfortunately, we're not all on the same page. And I think as a result of that, uh, I, I think the lady is starving uh, for clarity, is starving to develop their intellect, to better to know God. So um, how would you recommend outside of what you're doing for the lady to... Um, uh, grasp onto the truth of who Jesus Christ is in a culture that is really pushing us away from Jesus Christ. Well, um, truly, Mario, I believe deepening our Eucharistic faith. I'm very glad that the uh, the USCCB has this Eucharistic revival focus. Right. Uh, right. But the, the USCCB can't do it for me or mm. for you or for any individual diocese, ultimately. Uh, it really is about, I believe, a Eucharistic revival for all of us. And that is what I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast to ramp up our Eucharistic devotion, our reverence for the Eucharist. We're, we're in the midst of a year of the Eucharist and the Immaculate Virgin Mary. Um, and we're having a Eucharistic Congress in June. And I really believe that 
if we, and we've all seen the studies and the, the um, reports that say, oh, only X number, and it's a fairly minimal percentage of Catholics, when it should be 110% of Catholics believe yeah. in the real presence. Yeah. Anything less than that is bad. I mean, it's simply a failure. If, scary. if you call yourself Catholic and you don't really believe, I believe that a lot of the Eucharistic confusion is rooted in that we don't really deeply believe. How can we say, well, I don't, you know, really pay attention to what the church teaches about life, mm. or I have a totally different idea about what marriage is, and then embrace the Lord, who is the king of the church, who it's his bride. Mm -hmm. I mean, frankly, it's it's a slap in the face of Jesus Christ to say, oh, I want Eucharist, but I don't want these pieces of the church. I don't want the whole deal, but oh, absolutely, I want Eucharist. To me, that says, Mario, we don't really know him. We don't really believe yeah. that he's really there. The same one who talked to the woman at the well, the same one who changed water into wine at Cana. That's what we've got to really just keep focusing on and nurturing that Eucharistic faith to know him. And that, like I said, I mean, if I do anything worthwhile, it's because I spend time with him. And I don't spend as much time as I need, but I, I try to spend daily significant time yeah. in his presence. And, and really, Mario, and I, I, I say this because I we're working on really helping people because I think a lot of people have no idea, what am I supposed to do if I'm there in a chapel and it's Eucharistic adoration? What do I do? It's like, how do you start the conversation? Yeah. And that really is in many ways what it comes down to. Just start the conversation. Believe there and say, Lord, my job is going to hell in a handbasket, or my family's a wreck, or I just have this angst inside me that I don't know what to do. Talk to him. And what I started to mention just recently, because I have a little corner chapel at my house and the Eucharist is there and I have, I adore him, mm. you know, try for an hour every morning when I first start the day. Sometimes it doesn't work, but I try to do that as a habit. And just recently, uh, a few times, you know, because I, I mean, I have to pray morning prayer and all the sort of rituals of prayer, but I've developed a habit of just having a cup of coffee with Jesus, just having a cup of coffee and just saying, Lord, mm, you know, it's nice. It's crazy. I don't know what to do with this. Mm -hmm. um, how do I how do I shepherd these people better? And, you know, Mario, I don't I haven't heard voices or the Lord hasn't appeared to me, but I do really feel his presence. And. You know, uh, I can get emotional talking about it because if we really know him, yeah, there are moments when it hurts because I'm sure you have dear friends. You don't want to see them kicked and slapped yeah. and ignored and treated disrespectfully. You're going to stand. I mean, I can see you're not a little guy that's going to just let it go. You're going to get up and say, yeah. wait a minute. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> right. That's how we should feel about Jesus Christ, because he's really there. And he was really 
talked down to by Pontius Pilate. And he was really nailed to a cross and he really fell three times. All of those things that happened, it's the same guy that we're talking to. <laughs> we need to have that kind of relationship. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I, I think uh, many disassociate that reality that it's the same Jesus that walked the earth 2000 years ago, right? So um, I think we've forgotten that, uh, you know, and you mentioned it, that it's the power of the sacraments, you know, the the, the supernatural grace that is given to us uh, to do things beyond our own personal ability. And I, I think we need to be reminded that as a church, I think we need to uh, be shown that uh, not only by our bishops and our clergy, but by one another, you know, as an example. So how do you think we could do that as a church? Well, um, it's interesting. I've just been reflecting on that because, you know, there's lots of controversy about the liturgy and about what's the best liturgy. And and one thing that I think we all need to remember, Mario, is whatever the liturgy, it's a human expression seeking the wondrous, supernatural, miraculous mystery that is God. God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, Jesus. So we have that prototype, you might say. We have that image. We have him. But the liturgy is always a pale image of the glory and the mystery and the supernatural grace that's available. It needs to be the very best we can offer. But I think we have to acknowledge it's always going to fall short. It's always going to be the inner. The liturgy is not the end game. It's not the objective. It's the vehicle to get to him. Mm. And that's what I think we need to emphasize. And so what I would encourage, I love that you asked that question because it, it really gets home to something that I've been thinking about in my prayer. How do I help people? And covering the spectrum from people that like, you know, the novice ordo and the most novice, not so ordo, <laughs> that, that it can, <laughs> all the way to the most solemn, highest of high masses, the whole spectrum of people approaching Jesus and the liturgy. What I would encourage wherever anyone is on that spectrum to be as focused, as reverent, as intimately with him as you can possibly be hmm. and kind of let the rest of it go. Um, I believe that we can inspire each other. I mean, I'm a Bishop. Yes. I'm the presider, yeah. but I've been inspired by the piety of the laity hmm. there clearly deeply um, entering into that relationship with the Lord, a man here in the community, in the cathedral, I have, I, when I'm in town, I try to just have the regular 7 a.m. mass at the cathedral that I had for many years as a priest there. And uh, a man that has since died, but he would receive the Eucharist. He would receive communion in the hand. And some people say, oh, you know, you can't do that. It is an option that the, still the church offers. But to do it as reverently as we possibly can, this man would come up. And he would be there early for Mass. He was a man seeking that deep relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the way he received communion was inspiring to me because, and it was his way. And I think that's what we've got to find. What is most 
reverential, how do we approach the king of the universe that is there in the form of a simple round piece of bread from mm -hmm. the way most of us receive him? This man would come with his hands very, um, very reverent, and he would stand there after I place the, the body of Christ in his hand. He would stand there for several seconds just looking at the Lord in his hand. And then he would move off and re receive the Lord. And wow. to me, that spoke to me that this man really gets it. Mm. Receiving on the tongue is, is, a, is a reverent way. But rather than saying, oh, this is the only way, mm -hmm. look for your most reverent approach. Mm -hmm. and, and that reverence has to, I mean, I've just been reading recently and, you know, just the reality that um, I think, you know, biologically, scientifically, I mean, they they basically tell us that the consecrated bread remains in our bodies as, you know, something recognizable as consecrated bread after we receive communion for about 10 minutes. Um, and to really just remind ourselves, I guess what I'm getting at, Mario, is to approach him with the greatest reverence and then to carry him and to leave his presence with the greatest reverence, not to dash out the door. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think there's even in whatever form the liturgy is celebrated in, I think we can we can get caught up in in getting there at the last minute or leaving early or not being as we're all human. The Lord knows that he shares our humanity as he's fully God as well. And. I think we've just got to keep working at it and believe, I guess the final point that I would make with that question is believe that your genuine love of the Lord, your desire to be reverent toward the king of your life mm -hmm. as deep as you can, that will have an effect on the people around you without maybe saying a word. Certainly, if you know, you're inspired to talk to your spouse or your children or your workmates or whoever about your faith, great. But to believe, if you believe he's really there, and if you believe for those few minutes, you are a living tabernacle holding him mm -hmm. in the very core of your life, then act that way. And that's a challenge for me. That's a challenge for all of us because we're in a, in a, in a culture that is very fast paced and we don't take the time. We don't take the time for silence. We don't take the time to really focus. I think the more we can be reverent toward the Lord, yeah. the more we can be reverent toward each other as yeah. well and recognize yeah. the precious gift that every person is and yeah. all the life issues that beat us up are forgetting that life is sacred from conception to natural death. Wherever we are, that's, that's a sacred presence that is irrepeatable. And we've got to ramp up that kind of approach to living yeah. in this journey. I'm glad uh, you shared with us that uh, you were moved by the way the gentleman received the Eucharist. Uh, because we forget the uh, the impact we can make on people by example. And I mean, I was raised real Catholic, uh, you know, raised my kids Catholic, but I wasn't really living the faith. And it was about maybe 12, 13 years ago, I went to a mass 
uh, on a retreat at a Catholic retreat, and I saw young children, five, six, seven, eight years old, you know, kneeling and receiving the Eucharist on the tongue. And I was like, that moved me so much and made such a deep impression in me that it really was the beginning of my transformation. I said, wow, there's something really going on here. So yeah. uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, uh, as an apostle here at Ray of Hope, um, we started about 12 years ago. I was a music and film producer for 40 years and I was called, you know, and trying mm -hmm. to be obedient to share my gifts and talents for the church and, and starting a ray of hope. And one of the things that I was committed to, as you had shared that you became a, when you became a bishop, you kind of made a commitment to the Lord and yourself saying that, you know, I'm going to be, you know, proclaiming the truth as boldly and as loudly as I can do it. And, uh, that's the commitment here at a ray of hope. We want to proclaim the truth loud. No, Jesus Christ, the teachings of Jesus Christ. No, in-betweens, no gray, just black and white, Jesus, right in your face. So how would you recommend an apostolate such as ours to do that? Uh, because people are, uh, sometimes if you're too bold, you kind of push them away. So we want to, we want to continue doing what we do it, uh, through beauty and through the arts and through media, but not, you know, watering down the faith per se. Yeah. Well, Mario, I think it's because we're all you know, concupiscence is real. And no matter how hard we're trying, mm. our sinfulness, our dark side creeps in. And mm. certainly, and Satan is real and his minions are running around constantly trying to interfere with all the good that you do and the all the good that any of us does. And so I think we just humility. I mean, yes. I think we have to be humble and aware that, yes, we can be off-putting to people. But I think that, you know, I am proud to, and you have to be careful about being proud, but I am proud to to speak for the life of the unborn. I think if I'm known as Bishop Strickland, oh yeah, I mean, it's some vilified because I won't shut up about the sanctity of the life of the unborn. And then others, how much they appreciate that. But we have to remember, and I have to remind myself that, all the born are sacred as well. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them. The politician that, you know, I yell at the TV like anyone else when some politician or some actor or anyone says something that is just diametrically opposed to the truth, then we can get angry, we can get righteous, but we have to pull back and remind ourselves it's the godly perspective that none of us can claim to have, but we need to remind ourselves, how is God viewing that person mm. with love, always with love? As disciples, we have to have the humility of Christ. And so I think that's what we always have to go back to. And when we get into a, a heated situation, I think the, the humility of the truth is always something that can guide us back to a more effective place. It's it's not just um, a nice thing to do, but it's it's more effective evangelization when we approach it with humility. Beautiful, <laughs> uh, Bishop. Thank you so much for your time and and your words of wisdom and your uh, just your vocation and your commitment to the priesthood. Uh, uh, we here at Array of Hope pray for you and the church, and uh, let's continue to pray for one another. Absolutely. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you. God bless. 
So here we are, the end of another episode, and I'm so glad you joined us today. I want to remind you to please share this podcast with others. Let everybody know. If you've been blessed by our work, please consider going to our donation page on our website at arrayofhope.org. Also, join us on social media. It keeps us connected to our faith through our music, our videos, and daily reflections. There's lots of great stuff up there for you to see and share. We pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet on Instagram at 3 p.m., so please join us as we pray as a universal church. Our guest next time will be Dr. Matthew Levering, and we will be talking about our conscience and the role that it plays. It's going to be really informative, so make sure you check it out. So thanks again for joining us today. There's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace. Peace.